for the text, really, for the preaching. It's the first five uh, verses, maybe looking at verse 6 also. But we read verse 5 once again. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. There are many, many millions, if not even billions, around the world today who are eating and drinking and, and exchanging gifts. And they've spent a lot of money on decorating the house, their own house on the inside, on the outside. Even my own unbelieving family in the UK will spend time and effort and money in celebrating everything to do with, with Christmas. They'll have their trees and they'll have their, uh, their crackers, if you have them over here, I don't know. But they have all sorts of things that they've, they've prepared and they've brought in and, and do all things except anything to do with the reason uh, for the season. And the immediate answer, if I use that phrase, is, is, well, it's Christ. And I'd say, no, it's sin. Sin is the reason. And I say that not because I want to be different, because that's what the Bible says. The reason for the miracle of the Incarnation was to deal with the depravity of sin that God's people uh, were overwhelmed with. Whether they knew it or not, it needed to be dealt with. And it needs to be dealt with once and for all. But of course, when it comes to uh, this secular Christmas, sin is not mentioned at all. It's not even mentioned. There are nativity plays, there are pretty lights, there are decorated trees... But barely ever is the truth and the depth of Matthew 1 and verse 21 ever mentioned. And if it is mentioned, it's quoted and they move on uh, to the lambs and to the other aspect, which are very attractive to the world, but the core of the gospel. The core of the beginning of, of, of Christ's existence on earth at his birth, but even the conception nine months earlier, is what Matthew 1 and verse 21 says. And I'll quote that verse to you. And she shall bring forth a son. These are the words of the angel to Joseph. And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So there we have it. We understand that the incarnation is there not to uh, uh, add a, a, an unbiblical feast day. It's not there to, to add a, a, a pleasant time uh, for the, those that, that, that would follow it or make use of it in the wintertime. It's, it's not there for an, an, an excuse for uh, the supermarkets to, to earn a lot more money and the cards and the, and the, and the shops to sell uh, presents. It's, it's not for that at all. Although for many people that is the only focus. It's to deal with the greatest problem that all men and women and boys and girls have before God. The problem of life. Which is fact that we are depraved. That we are enemies of God by nature. That when we're born, even when we're in the womb, th there is nothing that draws us to God. We are, we are sinners by nature because we have a sinful nature. And the expression of that sinful and corrupt nature is that we sin against God. That our first language is like that of the devil. It is lying. We naturally lie. We lie to ourselves. We lie to each other. To each other. It is sin that brings the wrath of God upon us. It's sin that will bring us to the grave. That that's what brings us to a death of our physical bodies. And it is sin if it's unrepented of and undealt with and unpaid for by the Son of God that will bring our souls into hell and later on our souls and bodies into the lake of fire that burns forever solemn truths but it is the truth it is the core problem that we have it is not it is not the problems that we have with our, with our uh, democracy it is not uh, that there are problems there are pro not problems that we have with society and morality in general although they all touch upon this one thing sin All sin, sin of the politicians against the people, the lies thereof. 
the immorality that is fostered, that is encouraged, that is even sponsored uh, by the government. But all of these things are to do with sin and the denial of sin and the promotion of sin. And yes, again, we could, we could look at the higher levels of government and see where that's happening, and it is happening. But let us, let us bring it all down to look at our own selves and, and the sin uh, that we have. And so with the Lord's gracious help this morning, let us peel back, and it, there are many layers, peel back the many, many layers of secular feasting and entertainment and, and even those traditions of ecclesiastical feast days, all of which seem to be piled on top and, and distract from the core problem, which is the festering sin, and a righteous God will judge us for it. And so having considered all of that, uh, let us examine the absolute necessity of the incarnation. The absolute necessity of the incarnation. What is the incarnation for those who don't know that word? The incarnation is literally this, is the Son of God, is God taking on human flesh and a, and a, and a, a thinking and a reasoning soul. But becoming man, God becoming man. The Son of God becoming Jesus Christ. That is the incarnation, taking on of human flesh. When we open up chapter 10 of Hebrews, Paul is, the Apostle Paul is continuing his thought uh, from ch uh, chapter 9, uh, speaking of the many sacrifices that had to be made in the Old Testament, and he's reminding the Jewish Christians that's who he's writing to. That's, that's what we understand by the title of the epistle, Hebrews. He's writing to the Hebrew Christians. And he's reminding them uh, of the awful truth, which is our first point. The ritual sacrifices were grossly insufficient. That the ritual sacrifices that were taught in, in Moses and given to Moses by God were grossly insufficient. They did not help. And we'll see that. Firstly, that they did not remove sin. We'll see that in verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews chapter 10. All of those sacrifices, the daily sacrifices in the temple, the sacrifices that were made for sin, the burnt offerings, and all the feasts, the feasts that they brought, that they had every single year. Um, we had the, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all, all these feasts that are there in the Old Testament and the many sacrifices are there. What does Paul say about these? Verses 1 and 2, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect for then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshippers once purged that is cleansed of sin should have had no more conscience of sins so all of that complexity of the sacrificial system that the Lord set up with Moses and with the tabernacle and later uh, with the temple, with all its many different types of sacrifice and many different types of feast day and the, and the, and the Sabbaths and the new moons and, and all, these, all these sacrifices that were given, the millions of animals, the millions and millions of animals that were slaughtered and the innumerable gallons of animal blood that was poured out uh, 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 upon the altar or against the altar. Not one drop was effective in removing any sin. And Paul makes two points when he says this. He says, firstly... If they were effective, they would not have to have been repeated year in and year out. But the law of God said they had to be repeated year in and year out. And I'm thinking of the yearly feast days. But also every year you would have the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice in the temple. And twice to double the sacrifices on the Jewish Sabbath. It wouldn't have to be repeated for that sin would have been purged. It would have been cleansed if it had. It would have been, in, as it were, in the first year of following the law of Moses there in the wilderness, all the different sins in all the different ways would have been dealt with and that would have been the end of the sacrificial system if the Old Testament sacrifices could 
have removed sin. But secondly, not only would that sin have been cleansed if it was effective for cleansing of sin, but the conscience of those who are partaking in it would have also been cleansed. Instead of having that need, that nagging need every year or even personally going to the temple with, with that lamb or with that dove or whatever sacrifice needed to be made for your own sin because the sin would have been cleansed. You would have been purged. Your heart would have been purged. The sinful desires would have maybe even gone so far as to say even the sinful desires removed and therefore no need for a re-cleansing, a new cleansing. And that's Paul's argument here. If they, in and of themselves, were effective in any way for the removal of sin. But they were not. There are things in this world that you can only use for the cleaning of a certain substance. And you can come with, you can come with water. You can come with, with, with all sorts of uh, um, uh, different uh, solutions. But there's only one thing that would clear that. Say the grease in, on a gun will not be washed away just by water. There would have to be a, 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 the use of a specific chemical to wash it away. And this is what we're, and this is what we're understanding. There were, there were so many things that were shown in the sacrifice. I mean, they're all pointing to different aspects of Christ's offer of himself upon the cross. In different ways, in the way that God's wrath was appeased, in the, in the way that sin was covered, atoned for, and all these other aspects. And they were showing all this. There were examples, but they weren't the cleansing uh, fluid itself. They weren't, as Paul himself says, they had a shadow of good things to come. Yeah, but they were not the very image of the things itself. They pointed to Christ, but they were not Christ. So they did not remove sin. And you consider all that effort and all that money and all that organization, all the priesthood and the tabernacle and all its complications, and then later on even the temple service. But he could not remove sin. Secondly, they did not remove sin, but they could not remove sin. There's a, there's a subtle difference here. They, they didn't and they couldn't. They couldn't. They could not remove sin, even within the context of the law of Moses, because he says in verse 4, Paul says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. So it's not, it's not even, it, it really points to it, but it, it didn't even have any effect at all. It just was absolutely impossible to pay for a single sin of a single sinner. With all of the billions of gallons of blood poured out, the many animals put upon the altar, not one sin was paid for. On the contrary, Paul writes in verse 3 that these sacrifices and the sacrificial system that was given to Moses that the Old Testament people of God practiced reminded of sin. They reminded of sin. They did not remove sin. They could not remove sin. But they reminded of sin. They were a memorial as it were, of sin. And then verse 3 of Hebrews 10 tells us this. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. And when we think of that daily repetition, uh, that yearly repetition, sorry, then what are we thinking of? Yes, we're thinking of the whole system. But I would suggest to you that there is one particular day that he's really pointing to, and that is the Day of Atonement. The day upon which the sins of the people of God are absolutely covered by the blood. And there's a, there, there is much in there, not just the blood of the, of the, of the bullock, but also we have the, 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 two, the two goats. We have the, the scapegoat and the sacrificial goat. We're not going to go into all of those details today. But when we're thinking especially of sins being dealt with, of the people of God, yes, all the sacrifices, but especially the day of atonement. And every year they were coming in. But what did that day, of all the, of all the feast days, of all the days the people, the people of God were to come before the Lord to the tabernacle and later to the temple, what were they to do? They were to come feasting and rejoicing. But one day, but this one day of atonement, they were to come mourning. Because it was a day that reminded the people that they, the God that they served, Jehovah, was a holy God. He was, a, he was a, a merciful God. He was a righteous God. And yet they were 
a backsliding people. They were a faithless people. They were a, a sinning people. And they knew what sin was because the law told them in detail. They understood that these are the sins of the heathen. You will not do them. The people of God were to be holy as God is holy. And so they were reminded, here is a sacrifice for sin. I'm a sinner. I need that sacrifice. So they were reminded of sin, year in and year out. And so it is at this sacrifice, these sacrifices, the yearly ones, especially the Day of Atonement, that the believing Jew has a moment for self-reflection. As the lifeblood of the animal is, is, is poured out from its neck, is, the, the neck is split open, the, the, the blood is poured out into the bowl, and then the contents of the bowl, the lifeblood of that animal, are then, are then poured against the altar. But as that's happening, and then the animal's body is, is carved up and placed upon the altar, that he might say something like this, Therefore the grace of God go I that I should be on the altar, that I should have my, I should have my lifeblood poured out, that, that that animal is in my place. Killed for my sin, burned for my sin. And of course in that understanding, there is a gospel understanding. Not knowing the name of Jesus, not knowing of the place of Nazareth, not knowing of the cross, those many years later, but knowing this, God as providing a substitute for my sin. And I look to that. I believe on that. And as we said, that whole system, a shadow of good things to come, and yet not the very object itself, not the very image, not the very person of Christ. And yet through the believing and the hoping in that sacrifice in my place, the Old Testament believer was just as much saved as we are when we know the name of the sacrifice. We know when he happened. We know how it happened. But we're believing on the Lord who then provides and performs the sacrifice. And so then, in truth, when we have the Day of Atonement, which is a day of mourning, a day of humiliation, a day of remembering our sins against God, the Jewish sinner the believing Jewish sinner is brought to a realization that they have sinned against God. And even this year again, I am no better. I may have worked harder, I may have attended more diligently, and yet I am still a sinner before a holy God. So not only is he reminded of his sin, but I'll say this also, God is reminded of your sin. God is reminded of a sin because what does he do? He comes in, and this is why the Lord is very strict about where he is worshipped in the Old Testament, that you come into the tabernacle or you come into the temple and you come into the presence of God who knows your sin afar off in, e in any case. But there you are coming into his very presence. And as it were, God sees your sin and God himself is reminded of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year, both to the sinner and to the Lord. So they did not remove sin, these sacrifices. These bulls and these, these, these goats, these lambs, these doves. They did not remove sin. And they, secondly, they could not remove sin. They reminded of sin. And therefore, in and of themselves, and this seems almost contradictory to everything that we understand, they did not satisfy God. They did not satisfy God as a sacrifice for sin. They did not sacrifice God, and that's revealed in the middle of verse 5, which is the verse that we're really uh, looking at. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. And so that system of sacrifices, it pointed to the inability of man. It points to the inability of man uh, to remain sinless. He can't remain sinless because man himself is born, is conceived in iniquity and sin. He's born being iniquitous and sinful. And that's why the cute little two-year-old uh, toddler that you have running around your house or whatever lies, steals, hits, is disobedient, has a tantrum, and all these things, because it's in them. 
And of course, as they grow older, that becomes a little bit more sophisticated with the lying, with the stealing, with the deceit. And as, as, as one grows up to be an adult, it becomes even more, uh, in many ways, hidden. Yes, we can see the gross sins and the, and, 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 and the breaking of laws and people are then judged. They're caught by the police and they're judged. But the moral and the spiritual crimes that are hidden within every single heart are still there and they are seen by God. Though the world sees them not. Though you're able to hide them or able to make excuses or white lies to cover them. Yet it's still in there. And even when the Lord takes a dealing with us and the Lord draws us to his Son that we then have a, and we're brought to true saving faith in Jesus Christ and then we suddenly have a very different relationship towards sin and a very different relationship towards God. But even then, the rot is still very much in there. Though the Lord has renewed our will and created in us a new creature. We've become a new creature in Christ and yet the sinful flesh is still they're dragging us down, causing us to sin, so that we would, like the apostle says in Romans 7, we do that which we would not, but we do that which we, uh, we do that which we would not do, and we don't do those things that we would do. We have holy desires in the new creation, and yet we're stood in the way by our own flesh. We desire to be gracious, we desire to be friendly. And yet the pride and the self-righteousness and the spiteful tongue and whatever else it might be gets in the way and drags down the name of Christ even in our own heart and in our own experience. So this system of sacrifices, this complicated and full system that deals with so many aspects of sin if we were to open up and examine it. Leviticus chapters 1 to 6 gives us um, much of the truth of what that's about. And although God revealed it and God gave it to Moses and God made sure that Moses had it written down and, and we can be sure that this is the word of God that as it's revealed in Leviticus or also in Deuteronomy and wherever else the law is opened up and applied that this is what God gave to his people. This was the means of grace that he gave to his people then. God revealed it, God commanded it, God ordained every detail of tabernacle and then temple worship. He did it all, and yes, what do we understand what we had in the call to worship this morning? In Psalm 40 and verse 6, which is quoted in our own uh, Hebrews chapter 10, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened, burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. And again, this may seem a contradiction, but it's not just there in Psalm 40. Again and again from the prophets, from the very first prophet Samuel, uh, all the way, um, being the last judge in the first prophet Samuel, uh, all the way up to the prophet Amos, we have clear uh, indications in the scriptures uh, that these offerings were merely signposts. They were foreshadowings. They were a shadow of, thing, of good things to come, as Paul says in chapter 10 and verse 1 of Hebrews. That they were merely signposts, and the signpost is not the destination. They were merely foreshadowings of a greater and a truer sacrifice yet to come. 1 Samuel 15 and verse 22 it says this, and Samuel is rebuking King Saul. He says, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the word, the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. And so we understand from that and from a number of the other quotes that I could give is that it's it's the attitude that's given. God is not interested in religion. He's not interested in religious rules in, in, in and of itself. He's interested in, in the heart that you would come before the Lord honestly, penitently. It's better to obey God than to bring a religious ritual or to bring a religious service. Yes, the, the service is needed, but it's best to have, it's far better to obey than give sacrifice. That is 
The reason why the Lord says this, even though he has established the sacrificial system in Moses, is because that is in the very heart of you and me. It's in the very heart. And therefore, if it's in the heart, it comes out in the actions. So we are disobedient. We're disobedient, we're, we're rebellious, and yet we'll carry on with all our religious doings. We'll, we'll attend church, we will, we, 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 we will open this and that in prayer, and yet there's still a heart of rebellion within us. And God says, no, I am not pleased with that. Mm-hmm. To obey is better than sacrifice. We think sacrifice is better than obedience in our own fallen nature. But it is not. Psalm 51, that great psalm of David's penitence, repentance, and humility... Uh, with all of his sins regarding Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. And he says in verse 16 of Psalm 51, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. And again, that seems so contradictory with what we understand of, of, of the sacrificial system. And again, Isaiah 66 and verse 3, but I won't go into it. Jeremiah 6 and verse 20, for those who might be taking notes. And Amos, we'll finish with the quote from Amos 5 and verse 21 and 22. This is what the Lord says to his people. He says, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. So really there are two sides to this coin of the Lord despising these offerings and these sacrifices which the Lord had commanded through Moses. It's because they are brought hypocritically. They are brought without due humility before God. They're brought as, as the Pharisee and the hypocrite would bring them. And the Lord is not pleased by that. But also this, they are merely shadows. They are merely signposts. They are merely pointing to that sacrifice which would please the Lord. The aroma of which was a a, a sweet-smelling savour to God himself. And that is really the point that we see here. The sacrifices, they have their problem. They they, They bring remembrance of sin. They do not purge sin. They cannot purge sin. And they do not please God because they are not the blood of Jesus Christ. And what was true for the Old Testament people of God is true for the New Testament people of God. And therefore it's still true for you and me that we are reminded by those things that we've looked at this morning already of our own inability to do anything to please God. In the same way that these sacrifices, these lambs and these oxen and all these, that they did not please God, they did not remove sin, they could not remove sin, is the same for us. Anything that we do Anything that we would perform, anything that we would bring in and of ourselves, our own strength, our own ability, our own religion cannot pay for sin, cannot cleanse ourselves for sin, cannot bring peace between us and God, cannot truly clear our consciences. Now we know that man has invented so many ways uh, to suppress the voice of conscience be it by alcohol or drugs or by telling yourself lies or pointing to a date many years ago when I gave my heart to Jesus and yet my life, my thoughts, my desires and the words of my tongue speak otherwise. And we're not talking about perfection, we're talking about unrepented sin contradicts this. And therefore our consciences cannot be truly at peace. We are restless because the purging of the conscience has not taken place by the blood of Jesus. And if it has, there is sin, sin still unrepented and the Holy Spirit is still convicting you and you're still not repenting of that sin or sins in plural. So left to ourselves and to our own corruption, there is no hope, there is no future worth living. And you may be very diligent in religion. You may be very strict in keeping rules and commandments. You may be of the type that will add to the law, add uh, to the commandments of God. So what the Pharisees did, of course. But none of this will avail anything. None of this will help. Now, the Old Testament blood of beasts, 
nor the New Testament religious activities of, of attending church, coming to the means of grace, none of them in and of themselves have any value for the clearing of your sin and for the pleasing of God. But the Lord knows that religion, and even revealed religion, even true religion, was insufficient. And God, knowing that, made other plans, made better plans, and had all of this as various signposts to the great plan. So millions of lambs, millions of doves, millions of oxen, millions of bullocks, and all these that were sacrificed, unable, just like your works and my works, unable to please God, unable to pay for sin. All of those all gathered together, as I've mentioned before, all of those gallons, millions of gallons of blood poured out would not pay for one sin of one sinner, never mind the sins of all the people of Christ. So the ritual sacrifices were grossly insufficient. Which brings us to our second point this morning. The requirement to provide a sacrificial body. The requirement to provide a sacrificial body. And so, just to repeat, the whole system of sacrifices, everything that was revealed to Moses, with its remind, reminding of the sinfulness of man and the righteousness of God's wrath for sin, the need for a substitute and the inability of man to provide that which is pleasing to God. And those aspects of the gospel were reminded to the people of God throughout the prophets, as I've mentioned a few of them. So they understood this. It was incomplete. It was incomplete because that lamb was not the suffering servant. It wasn't the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. But it was a daily reminder of the inability of man to do in and of himself, in and of herself, anything that would deal with sin. But as I said, these sacrifices are all signposts to God's ability to deal with sin. Not only pointing out our inability to deal with sin, but pointing to God's ability to deal with sin completely. And absolutely. Verse 12 of chapter 10 says this. But this man, speaking of Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. One sacrifice for all sins, and yet all of these sacrifices for no sin. Again, the Lord often has these great contrasts for us in the scriptures that we could see. One thing... And then understand it's very opposite contrast. Our inability, God's absolute ability. All of that blood constantly poured out. And yet to no avail in and of itself. Of course the belief and the faith in what God is saying through that. Of course there was, there was, the Lord used that to bring people to salvation. But none of that blood were, and yet the blood of the one sacrifice of Christ for all sins, for all his people, forever and ever. Again, that great, great and, and glorious contrast. So in God's ability to deal with sin, there is the promise that is made. There is a promise that has been in the scriptures from the very beginning. We see that in verse 7 is mentioned to us. But the work of God is, ne is never separate from how he re what he reveals uh, to his people. Verse 7 says, Then said I, this is Christ speaking, I come in the volume, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And they're again quoted from Psalm 40, this time verse 7. So in the book of God, in the Bible, in God's revelation to his people, there is promise after promise that God will provide a complete solution, a full answer to the needs of man which is his sin. His sin, his rebellion, God's wrath, man's guilt to be dealt with. And Christ is firstly the promised seed that is promised in the Garden of Eden. At the moment that sin enters into mankind, in chapter 3 of Genesis we read this, in that very moment there also become, comes into his hearing a gospel promise.
as the Lord has spoken to Adam and then he's spoken to Eve and he, I should say he's spoken with Adam and he's spoken with Eve and then he speaks against the serpent. He says in Genesis 3 and verse 15, he says, and I will put enmity, you will be foes, you will be enemies between thee and the woman, speaking to the serpent, speaking to the devil, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So Christ is that promised seed from the very beginning, from where sin enters in and sin begins its corrupting power upon Adam and Eve and upon all those that are descended from Adam and Eve, which if we were to put up our hand would be everybody here, of course, everybody on the planet, every human being. And yet God gives that promise even then that there is a promised seed to come, a promised child, a promised offspring. So he's the promised seed, but he's also the promised prophet. So this seed who would yet come is a prophet of God, who would speak the word of God. And it's Moses that gives uh, that truth, and we could go through the whole scriptures, we won't, we just keep it there. That the promised prophet in Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15, it says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, so a Jew. Like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. Like unto me, appointed by God, anointed by God, ordained of God, sent by God. Like Moses, in that way, a prophet of God. There's much more that we could say when we're considering the promise, uh, the promise of God dealing with it, the God, the promise, and the requirement to provide a sacrificial body. But we'll move on, secondly, to the preparation. The preparation. And, and that's what we see here in verse 5. Wherefore, for which reason? So see what this wherefore stands in verse 5, looking at the previous four verses, at least. For which reason that the sacrifices were insufficient, grossly insufficient. So many of them, millions of them, but insufficient to do anything for your sin. For which reason, wherefore, when he cometh into the world, when Christ comes into the world, when Christ is incarnated, when the Son of God, internal, eternal, infinite, and unchanging God becomes a finite, a mortal human being. It says here then, for that reason, when he cometh into the world, he saith, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. Here is the sacrifice. Here is the offering. Here is the one offering. Pointed out to us in the middle of the psalm book. In the Old Testament. But the preparation for that body began even before the fall, of course. In the, in, in, the, in the counsel of God, the eternal counsel of God, having decreed, and we looked at it uh, briefly last time, in, in what we call the, the covenant of redemption, that the Lord, the Father, had determined with the Son that there was a people to be redeemed and that the Son would redeem them. That they were to be his people, but it would cost him greatly. Not because they are worth it, but because the sin itself is so gross that it costs much to pay for. So not even the, the blood of bulls and beasts would pay for it. It must be the holy blood of the incarnate Son of God. It will cost greatly. It will cost, the great, it will cost a great humiliation that the eternal God becomes a man. And it would cost him greatly because he who is the king of all creation is merely the son of a poor carpenter, according to the flesh. And all of these matters, and, and, and a man who's hated and despised because he speaks the truth, and all humans love a lie. And therefore they hated him, because he spoke the truth about who they are, and about what God thought of their religion. He spoke the truth and they hated him. So he is to be humiliated, he is to be hated, and he is to be unlawfully killed as the lowest criminal of the land. The lowest criminal of the Roman Empire. 
He will be humiliated and have humiliation upon humiliation, despising upon despising, instead of he who is glorified and worshipped by, by angels, by cherubim, by seraphim, calling out, Holy, Holy, Holy is, is the Lord, the Son of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Instead of him receiving all that worship which is his due, which he deserves, which is his, he is to become a despised human being humiliated and hated and then killed. Why? To save his people from their sins. Because sin is so gross. Sin is so terrible. And brethren and sisters, our understanding of sin is so light. So superficial. We think we can get away with, against clear scriptural commandments and how we're to treat God and treat each other how we're to worship him, how we're to love him, how we're to treat each other, is clearly written in the scriptures, and yet we can lie to ourselves and deceive ourselves, oh, that doesn't matter, oh, that's not so important, or oh, I have a reason for disobeying that. It shows that we have no true holy allergy for sin. We should flee sin and all the appearance of sin, but we don't. We make excuses for sin. We hide sin. We have bosom sin. But God knows what sin is. God knows that it is that spiritual and moral cancer upon which his wrath must eternally fall and burn away. And so it cost the Father greatly to send his Son so that whosoever will believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But the Son must perish. The Son must be under the wrath. The Son must have all the sins of all his people put upon him and upon his flesh. And Christ said, yes, Father. The unlovable I love. The hate-ridden I have affection for. Father, yes, I will be their kinsman redeemer. I will take on their flesh spotted, their flesh in the appearance of sin. But he was without sin. I will take it on. I will take the humiliation. I will take the, the hatred. I will take on this death. I will be despised by the multitudes, baying for my blood and despising me because I love my people. And so, wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, sacrificing and offering. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. So we see even from eternity, we see that the Lord is dealing with this, but then we understand also genetically in Adam and Eve. In Adam and Eve, all people come forth from Adam and Eve. And so genetically, all the information for all that have ever existed was in Adam. And Eve came forth from Adam. And, how, and how, that is, how, that, how the Lord works that out is, of course, one of the great wonders of the Lord. How is he able to do that? Well, he's able to do it because he is able to do it. He's able to do all these things. And so, from, so even within the loins of, of the unfallen Adam, all of, all, of, all, of, all of those that would be brought forth and would yet live are there in some way. And yet, what do we see with Christ, though? To try to understand these things. Because we're spoken of again and again a number of times in the Scriptures, only a handful, uh, speaking of the lineage of Christ. The genealogies that are shown unto us, that we understand that from Adam, in the Christ's lineage, we have him in the line of believing Seth, of Abraham, and even later on, through the line of Judah and David being the first king upon the throne of the house of Judah, and all the way down to Mary. Mary is his mother according to the flesh. And yet he has no earthly father. Lest that promised seed would be corrupted uh, by sin. And yet through, through Mary he takes on... He takes on that body. He receives that body from, uh, from Mary, as it were. 
in that sinless and that holy conception of Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And what do we have then? A heavenly and divine Father and a sanctified earthly mother. We've looked at this a couple of years ago, what those words mean in Luke. The Son of God becoming truly human, he is God incarnate. And what do we then see? Conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, carried for nine months in Mary's womb, and birthed in humble and inglorious circumstances, born like a lamb in a stall outside Bethlehem, born to die. And to die is the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And all of that was promised, and all of that was planned, and all of that was performed by God in due time. Again, there are so many details that we could draw out of the Old Testament, even can see, seeing that the, that the Lamb of God was also the suffering servant, that he is the king who is to come and defeat. And we think of a king coming and, and conquering earthly enemies. No, he came and conquered spiritual enemies. Sin, Satan, death. That's what he came to conquer, and he did. All of these promises, all of these plans, these eternal plans and plans that we see carried out in history were performed by God outside of you and without your help. And yet it was all done to save you. It was all done to save you. To save whom? To save those who are the people of Christ. And that's what we understand. That, yeah, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so the question then is, is, why do you still look to yourself? For many do. And even after salvation, many still look to themselves. It is a sinful habit that's still there. The Old Testament believer, when looking at the sacrifice, was being taught to look at something outside of himself and beyond himself in God's provision. God's provision and God's way of dealing with sin. There are many... There are many uh, religions and philosophies in the world that, that, that do not demand sacrifices of animals, but the Jewish religion did for this very reason. That you were to look to that sacrifice for the dealing of your sin, and in the same way the New Testament believer is to look unto Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. He who is God's undeserved and gracious provision is the only way to deal with sin. So understanding everything and the complication and the, the manifold truths of the Old Testament worship, let that be an example of your own self-righteousness. That all these things that could be done would not pay for one sin. But the one payment for sin and the one way for the payment of sin is Jesus Christ and the cross. And therefore, sinner, you are to believe on Christ in order to have your sins dealt with by him whose one drop will purge your soul forever and ever. And also believe that it's still Christ that has dealt with all your sins. It's still Christ, and only through him do we have peace with God. And so we must let go of all these ideas that, that works and efforts and private devotion and, and, and strictness and standards and anything to do uh, with our own works and our own abilities add anything to the incarnation and the crucifixion of that incarnated body. They add nothing. Human pride says otherwise, but human pride is a liar. It adds nothing. None of them are even equal to one drop of his blood. They buy nothing. They pay for nothing. These works. Because if you do look to your own works, you may say, I look to Jesus, yet, yeah, but you look to Jesus and your own works. Essentially what you're saying is Christ is insufficient. His blood is not enough. In essence, you've become a Roman Catholic. A bit of you and a bit of God. But have we not understood from these verses? It's nothing of you. It's all of God. And that's the core truth of the Incarnation. 
Man was and is destitute of any hope of salvation. Even by the strictest and revealed religion. The strictest and, and truly revealed religion could not save. But faith, but faith in God's promises. And God had prepared from all eternity, brought it about in history, a sacrificial body for his son to die for the sin and the guilt and the self-righteousness of his people. And as your salvation believer was undeserved, as we close now, so was the salvation of everyone Christ has saved. We have not deserved it. And therefore, Christ must receive all the glory. Wherefore do you boast? If you would boast, boast in Christ. There's much more to this miracle of the incarnation which, God willing, we'll examine next Lord's Day morning. Well, let us close in a word of prayer. Amen. Our Lord and God, once again, thy word has encouraged us to look away from ourselves and our own religion and our own experiences and look unto Jesus. We thank thee, Lord, for him who humiliated himself uh, that he would save us and yet we've seen, Lord, the emptiness and the inability of all religion outside of the blood of Jesus Christ, the person of Christ, and that incarnated body crucified for sin. Forgive us, Lord, where our human flesh and pride that bubbles up and would add to that work or would contradict that work. Humble us, Lord, as thou didst humble thy son for one purpose, humble us for another purpose, that we would give all the glory to God, that we would boast in Jesus and not in ourselves. Hear us, we pray thee, for Christ's sake. Amen. Please pick up your hymn books to hymn 127. Hymn 127. The Saviour of the world. I cannot tell why he whom angels worship should set his love upon the sons of men, or why a shepherd he should seek the wanderers to bring them back. They know not how or when. I must stand to sing these four verses.